Good morning. Welcome to Central Vineyard. If it's your first time, or maybe you've been here for a few weeks, it's great to have you with us. Um, if you haven't met me, my name's Tammy. I'm one of the pastors here at Central Vineyard, and um, it's just a pleasure to be here. But what we've been doing over the past couple of weeks is that we've started uh, a sermon series called The Good Life. Um, what is the good life? How do we find the good life? We're in the course of the teaching, we've been looking at how we live a good life, how it involves a life of character and a life of calling. It's not enough to live a life that looks good on our work resumes and, and, and for our bank balance. That's, it's just not enough. We want our words and our deeds to match up, that we see a consistency between who we are here on a Sunday and when we leave this place and on Monday we go to work, we go to school, we go to university, we might stay at home. Anyway, we're out there um, in public, in the world. We need to live a good life, the life that God created us to live. And today's life is talking about the life of compassion. And so what I will say is, um, you know, just what a wonderful worship time that was because God came and showed us just how much he loves us and his compassion for us is never failing. Um, but then he also wants to challenge us. So I get to do that this morning. And when we think of compassion, we might think of some of the good deeds we do. Maybe we, um, you know, send money um, to a child in another country. Um, maybe we just like to do nice things and we do our bit. And those things are all really good and we should definitely do those things. But I believe that God's life, the good life, is more than that. I think the compassion of God should stretch us more than that. It should make us quite uncomfortable. Many of you may have heard the poem by Dr. Zeus, um, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Um, here's a picture of the Grinch. When, um, when I was chatting through this talk with my children, they were like, put a picture of daddy up yeah. <laughs> by accident. I was like, um, and I was like, no, I don't think we'll do that because he's not really a Grinch. But uh, here is the real Grinch. <laughs> but the Grinch is um, someone who hated Christmas. And he hated Christmas so much that he wanted to ruin it. And he wanted it to ruin it for the whole town of Whoville. Um, and so he decided to steal the trees, the decorations, the presents, the food, just anything that could be associated with Christmas. And now the reason the Grinch hated Christmas so much is told in the first few verses of the poem. It says this, Every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Now please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. It could be that his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. And I think we're challenged when it comes to the compassion of God because we're a bit like that. Our hearts have shrunk. Maybe two sizes too small. You know, life for us may have meant that we might not have had the best deal. We may have just been around some people that have rubbed us up the wrong way. And those things cause our heart to shrink. And you know what? I think we only have one role model, one role model that can show us how to grow our hearts. And that role model is Jesus. So I just want to pray before we go on and make this bigger. <laughs> um, okay. 
Father God, I just pray this morning that you will come and speak to our hearts, that you will come and show us those places, Lord, where we've allowed our heart to, to just shrink, and that, Lord, you would then show us what we need to do to grow our heart, where we can water it, Lord, how we can just live that good life in order to see your kingdom come. Amen. So in order to live the good life, we need a role model. And actually, from the moment we are born, we are imitators. We're imitators of the people around us. That's how we learn. And, we sh and as we grow, we shape our lives around a picture of what we find attractive, what we're drawn to, what we find desirable. We shape our lives around a vision of what captures our hearts. And I would suggest that no one will captivate your heart more than Jesus Christ. To know Christ is to know the kindest person you could ever meet. He is the most best friend you will ever have. He's the most faithful, the most honest, the most truthful, the most generous, the most forgiving, the most shocking, the most surprising person. He's, an, he's admirable. You will never meet anyone like him in history. And one of the characteristics of Jesus that we, we know and love and we read about in the Gospels is his compassion. He was an incredibly compassionate person. And if we're going to grow our hearts, we need to know, where does that model of, of big-heartedness come from? How do we get there? Well, there are dozens of passages in the Gospels that speak about Jesus' compassion. And we don't have time to read the whole Testament this, this morning. So I'm just going to take a couple of verses first from Matthew 9, um, verse 30, 36, as I speak, and then Matthew 15. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And again, Matthew 15, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. How would you define compassion? Have you ever been around someone and you think, man, they're a truly compassionate person? You know, I'm fortunate enough to work on staff here at Central Vineyard, and I get to be amidst people all week that just give their life to serving um, the, la the lost and the least of this town. It's truly incredible. So what's the definition of big-heartedness? You know, well, in an English translation of the Bible, over eight dozen times regarding God, the word compassion is used, but actually it's hundreds of times if we consider all the synonyms of compassion, like mercy and pity, and I'll probably use some of those words as I go through. But the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are just lots of incredibly rich, emotionally laden words that are used to describe the compassion of God and the compassion of Jesus Christ. And speaking of God in the Old Testament, um, there's a wonderful Hebrew word, and it's like rachem, but you have to be able to get that clicky thing going. But that means to have mercy upon or to be compassionate towards. The word rachem, which is one of the characteristics of God, is also closely re related to the word womb. And the idea that God has a feeling of pity or compassion towards someone that is similar to the connection of a mother to her unborn child in the womb. It means tender love. And in the New Testament, there are a number of words that are translated compassion, but probably the most colourful one is the Greek word splanknon, 
Splanknan. And actually, we've got some friends uh, living in Greece, and they're probably going to text me later after they've listened to the talk just to tell me how wrong my Greek translation was. <laughs> um, but actually, Splanknan is used to reference kindness and goodwill. But what it actually means, it means the physical organs of the intestines. So it means your bowels, your liver, your spleen. Um, and it's related to the word splanknozomai, which means compassion. So over and over when it says Jesus felt compassion towards a leper, he felt compassion for a blind man who was calling out, or he felt compassionate towards a woman weeping over the death of her son. He was moved to do something. He was moved. He was splanknozomai. So he was moved from the depths of his guts and from the seat of his emotions. And today we don't kind of say, oh, I love you from my guts. We've changed that a bit. And we say, I love you from my heart. We've moved it over to sound a bit more pretty. Um, And that's where the translation of big-heartedness comes from. Um, And the God we serve has a massive heart, a huge heart. And he revealed himself in Jesus Christ to us in person. And the simplest synonym for compassion that we can come up with is big-heartedness. And you often say that if you see a compassionate person, man, they've got a big heart. And, you know, in Northampton, you only have to look out the window. You know, we have financial migrants. We have homeless people who live in tents. They live in encampments on roundabouts, it appears, and verges and woodlands around our town. They live there. They cook there. That's where they take care of themselves or not. And actually, if you think about it, it's a little bit shameful to think we just accept that. We just accept it. We see it and we accept it. We're not, we don't necessarily have compassion for those people. How many times have you probably heard the phrase, maybe you've even uttered the phrase, well, that's their choice. That's what they choose to do. They choose to live there. You know, we just don't feel compassion towards those people. The compassion that perhaps Jesus felt towards the poor towards those who are homeless, towards those who are sick, towards the outsider, you know, towards those people who are being kicked around in a system that's too strong for them to fight. And we don't even share Jesus' big heart for that. And I put it to you like the Grinch who stole Christmas. Our hearts are two sizes too small. God has an infinitely large heart. It's so large that we can't even fathom how large it is. And our hearts have shrunk in the midst of that. We've not fed them with the level of compassion that Jesus has shown. But my guess is that we're all here because we want Jesus to be present in our lives. We want Jesus um, to be our model and our guide. And there's an easy way to tell if Jesus is present somewhere. So this morning our um, reading and where we're going to focus on is Luke 4 verses 14 to 20, so you can turn there um, in your Bible, in the New Testament, all the words are going to appear on the screen. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in the synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read... And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. How can we tell if Jesus is present? Well, wherever Jesus is present, the gospel is going to be preached. Wherever Jesus is present, sick people are going to be healed. Wherever Jesus is present, sinful people are going to be forgiven. And wherever Jesus is present, poor people are going to be helped. So when there's preaching, there's healing, there's forgiveness and there's justice for the poor, Jesus is there compassionately pouring out his mercy, pouring out his love, pouring out his heart, displaying it for all to see. And a church that has the spirit of Jesus in their midst is going to demonstrate that big-heartedness of Jesus towards the world. And we need to know Jesus is present because it helps us to understand what shrinks the heart. What is it that may have caused us to have our hearts shrunk? Well, Luke 14, 4, 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And we say, who are the poor? Who gets the good news? Well, some would say it's just the spiritually poor, not the materially poor, not the people who are being evicted from their homes, not the folks whose stuff is out on the street, not the people who are laid off, not the people living in a tent over the road. Jesus doesn't have anything to say to them. He just wants to speak to the spiritually poor. He wants to acknowledge their need, and he wants them to acknowledge their dependence on God. Luke 4.18 says, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Well, who are the prisoners? And we spiritualize this. Jesus doesn't want us to go into real prisons with real bars and razor wire and real criminals. Jesus is not interested in us working for criminal reform. We spiritualize this. We say he's come to set those who are in prison to sin uh, free. But that is all. Luke 4.18 continues to say, and recovery of sight for the blind. Well, who are the blind? Again, Jesus doesn't want, want us to heal the actual physically blind, those who have actual physical conditions. No, this is just text that acknowledges that um, people might not see God's activity through his appointed Messiah, Jesus. And we reduce that gospel to things only spiritual. And certainly at the heart of the gospel is the message that Christ died on the cross. You know, it's a substitutionary payment for our sins. Um, he died in your place, he died in my place. It's sheer grace, it's a sheer gift through the gospel. Um, you know, Jesus said, let me pay your bill for you. Let me bear your guilt. Let me take all of your sin and I will suffer in your place. Well, that is the message of Christ's death. And it's at the center of the gospel. It's at the center of everything we do. Does it fill out our whole circle? You know, should all of our Christian eggs be placed in one basket, the evangelism basket? Should we try or should we just try and work for justice? Or should followers of Christ help people to put actual food on their tables? Can we go out along with evangelism and help those who are victims of domestic abuse? Can we help those who are victims of trafficking? Should we provide help and welcome to refugees, people who are fleeing war and violence in their country? Should we bring about racial justice? Should we avoid all these issues and simply just go about bringing people to Jesus? Believe in evangelism is the only thing that will change the world. And many Christians believe that. 
We say, listen, if we want to change the world, just get people to accept Christ, um, and their hearts will change and society will change, and, and that's the end of it. That will change families. People will no longer beat their wives, assault their children. People will no longer go hungry. Is that true? That all we need is just evangelism? Or do we need to help people materially, practically? Do we need to be deeply challenged to move beyond our patterns? And do we need to encourage those to grow and be transformed beyond that evangelism? And some churches might swing entirely in the opposite direction and they shrink the heart by reducing the message to only a material message. In verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. And some churches would say that Jesus only came for the materially poor. If you're wealthy and well-off, if you live in a nice suburban area and you're okay, well, Jesus has got nothing to say to you except you ought to just feel guilty for having a nice life and lots of money. Or do we say that Jesus came for actually the only prisoner, the prisoners in jail, not for those who are imprisoned by their regret or their fears or what they did or didn't do? Why does the material-only gospel shrink our heart? Why do churches that focus entirely on the material and social problems produce shrunken-hearted people? It's because the passage is saturated with the Spirit. In verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Without the Holy Spirit watering our hearts, flooding our hearts, filling our life, our hearts will shrivel up. They, they dry up. And like the Grinch's heart, they'll shrink. Two sizes too small, maybe more. If spiritual reality is not constantly on our radar screens, we will stop bringing about material justice. And there's a woman named Frances Perkins whose story David Brooks tells in a book called The Road to Character. She says this, she thought to herself, when a person gives a poor man shoes, should you do it for the poor man or should you do it for God? Perkins decides that you need to do it for God because the poor person will often be ungrateful and you will lose heart if you rely on an immediate emotional reward for your work. But if you do it for God, you will never grow discouraged. You know, many people give their life to ministry, but many people step out of ministry, maybe even for extended periods of time. Maybe you're in that place now, maybe you've been hurt because you've encountered a misunderstanding or some ingratitude, or you feel your contribution isn't acknowledged enough. You don't like how it makes you feel. You don't like how they make you feel. You know, and I would just encourage you with all love and affection to just step back in. You know, maybe you are involved in some kind of ministry already. And I just encourage you to keep going. Keep going. But church, you know, with all seriousness, let me say this. We need to stop doing things for the sake of people. We need to stop doing things for the sake of church. We need to stop doing things for the sake of justice. And we need to do things for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because you won't survive unless you do this. 
If you can do that, only then will you experience the good life. If you can truly say, I'm doing it unto the Lord, your heart won't shrink. And the heart shrinks when we reduce God's compassion to only people like us. You know, initially after people heard Jesus, they responded with favour to his message. Here's what we read in verse 22. I don't think it's on there. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. They were saying, this is incredible. God has sent his Messiah. He has sent him in the world to save his chosen people. Good news is being preached to us. We're going to be released. Us Jewish people are going to be released from our enemies, the Romans. He's going to intervene on our behalf. And they were really happy to hear that message. But Jesus went on to say this in verse 25 and 27. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine through the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow, widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. And he says, you know what? God's favour is not just confined to people like us. I come in the tradition of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah who left Israel and ministered to the Gentiles in Sidon. Elisha who cleansed leprosy, but not in Israel. He cleansed the leprosy of a pagan general in Syria. How did the people respond? Verse 28 and 29 says, All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill Jesus. Our heart is shrunk when we restrict God's mercy and compassion to people like us. However you define us, however you define that, you know, we say, oh, we want to show mercy and compassion to the English people, but he doesn't really care about those living in other countries and that's where they should stay. Let them fend for themselves. God wants to show mercy to people of our race, but not others. He wants to show compassion to people who are moral, like us. He wants to show compassion to those who share our political views. But if we start expanding God's circle of compassion and mercy to different kinds of people like Jesus did, the foreigners, the immigrants, the refugees, people of different religions. If you say God wants to show mercy and compassion to those, maybe those in prison, those living on the streets, those who have made mistakes, to people who believe in other political parties, our reaction might be a little bit negative, particularly if our hearts are shrunk. You know, and I have to confess, I live in that category too, the shrunken heart category. So do you. We struggle with the infinitely large heart of God. At some point, you are going to say no to God's mercy. You are going to say no. That group of people cannot have God's compassion. That person cannot receive God's compassion. That person cannot receive God's mercy. We all have lines we won't cross with the level of compassion that we show. And wherever we choose to deny God's mercy and compassion to another human being, wherever we refuse to be a conduit of God's mercy and compassion to another person, should he ask us of that? 
at that point, we're choosing to shrink our hearts. So our hearts shrink when we reduce the gospel to only a spiritual message. It shrinks when we reduce it to a material one. And it shrinks when we reduce it to showing compassion to only people like us. But the good news is we get to grow. We get to grow our hearts. Um, and in the poem of the Grinch, towards the end of the poem, the Grinch's heart grew three sizes in that one day. And so it's possible that even Grinches like us can have our heart grown. You know, if we experience the good life of compassion that God has created us to live. So how do our hearts grow? Well, our hearts grow when we see ourselves as potentially needy. Life in this world is really vulnerable. When we are comfortable, we have everything we need, everything that's going well for us. We cannot imagine ourselves to be poor or to, des to be desperate, to be in need, or have to be on the reliance of somebody else's compassion. We can't imagine it. But unexpectedly, horrible things can happen to nice people, to comfortable people. The bottom of our world can fall out at any time. And I'm going to ask Maria to come and just share a story with us this morning. Thanks, Tammy. Um, so good morning. My name's Maria, for those of you that don't know me. And I'm just one of a team at Restore Food Bank. And I'd just like to share a bit of my story. It was Christmas week 2015, and I was in a really bad place. And I found myself outside the door of the Restore Food Bank. I stood in the doorway, and I was just so scared. I couldn't move. Johnny, my son, just pushed me through the door. Hello, I'm Kay. Would you like a cup of tea? After a couple of seconds, Johnny said, Mum, do you want a cup of tea? I nodded yes. I asked Johnny, is this the right place? There was homemade bread pudding, biscuits and fruit on the table. And a lovely lady was making me a cup of tea. They were all so welcoming, so kind, and I wasn't judged. It felt safe, and people really cared. I started volunteering at the food bank in the spring of 2016, only for an hour a week to begin with, and I've never looked back. The warmth, the compassion I felt that first week was there every week, and so was that cup of tea. What was it about Restore that made me want to keep coming back week after week? As I got to know more of the staff and the volunteers, it was clear. Everyone cared. They'd just seen me for who I was, someone in trouble. No one's going to judge me. From someone who wouldn't leave the house on my own to now, well, I've been to Faith Camp, I've been to New Wine and Trent Vineyard twice uh, with some of my Restore friends and Vineyard. My life's changed so much in the last four years. Volunteering at the food bank has done for me what none of the doctors, none of the psychiatrists or medication could do. I have a purpose in life. Whether I'm on the host team on Sundays, welcoming new people to Gateway on Tuesdays or Alpha on Mondays, 
I'm so much stronger, more confident, and I feel like a person, not a burden. My family and friends have watched me grow and like what they see, and I've made so many friendships, and they're going to last forever. And I've come to know and love Jesus along the way as well. So it's just a big thank you to everyone at Restore and Vineyard, past and present, because I really do believe you saved my life that day in December 2015. And it all started with a friendly face and, of course, a cup of tea. So would you... How would your life have gone if you hadn't been shown compassion in that moment? Um, well, not long before, I had tried to take my own life. I took over three... There's too many little ones, sorry. Um, yeah, so I was as down as you could get. And I think that was the circle I was on. And I wouldn't have recovered from that. Thank you, Maria. <laughs> you know, Maria didn't choose to put herself in that place, but she was in a desperate place, and it took a moment of compassion from someone to save her life. You know, and in reality, you know, a national survey showed that people living in the UK were only two paydays away from poverty. It takes one thing to go wrong. We need to see the reality of what we're close to. What would you do if the unthinkable happened to you? We all at some point might need help. What compassion would you like to receive? Secondly, our hearts grow when we get near to the suffering. You know, we don't have mercy or compassion on issues so much as we debate them. You know, you quote your writer's tweets or blogs. You quote your newspaper articles, and I'll quote mine. Let's have a discussion about that. Let's have an argument. And we can debate all day. We can debate all day about the ideas and the needs. But debating the issues is never going to grow our hearts getting near to people who are really suffering will. Our vineyard friends, Richard, Marley and Nathan, uh, from Columbus, Ohio, shared this story. <coughs> years ago, Marlene and I lived in an impoverished area of town here in Columbus for several years. Our neighbours were a poor family. The children had different dads. Because we lived there for a number of years, we got to know the children. The daughter in particular attached herself to us because she was a middle child and just got lost in the shuffle. Share the middle child thing. If you're lost in the shuffle, <laughs> hang on. <laughs> and it didn't seem like her family paid much attention to her. And then Rich and Marlene moved. But a few years later, at age 15, the, the girl showed up at church and she was carrying an infant in her arms. And she said, look, I'm a mum. 
I saw this little girl, 15 years old, with a baby. And you know, as heartbreaking as it is, debating the issue of teen pregnancy is not going to change it. It's not going to change your heart. Getting near and showing compassion to a child who's had a child will. You'll never grow your heart debating prison and justice reform, shouting at the TV to lock them up and throw away the key. It's just never going to happen. You will never grow your heart until you've held the hand of a woman or a prisoner who is desperately sorry that the effects of her life caused her to act in a way that was just beyond her control. And she's living in the constant unworthiness of what she's done or what the prison has done. They don't need your judgment. You know, and I've held the hand of a woman, a prisoner who was out, but she was not sorry for what happened and she would still deny her part in that. And even though I knew what she'd done and I knew what the victims were going through, God said to me, you need to hold her hand. You don't dare judge her because she is my child and she needs the love of God. God told me to show the compassion that he would show her. How do you see prison and justice reform if it's your child, your brother, your mother, your husband, whatever? How would you want them treated? You know, and you don't get to debate, you don't get to, to, to debate life until you've held the hand of a woman who, when she was 16, had an abortion. And she just didn't know what else to do. And she spent the rest of her life living in desperation and hating herself and going through bad relationship after bad relationship. Until you've held her hand and heard her story, you don't get to judge until you become friends with an asylum seeker and they're no longer just a scaremongering news story for entertainment, you don't get to judge. Until you know someone who lives on the streets and they live in oblivion day after day because that's all they can do to cope, until you're friends with that person and you can still tell me it's their own fault, then we get to debate then we get to judge. But actually what we need to do is stop sitting on our sofas and judging, shouting at our TVs, using our electronic devices. And we need to move from to a place of compassion, to a place that makes you feel uncomfortable. Your heart will not grow unless you know the real heartache of the one you judge. We need to turn our hearts around. We need to not shrink it. You know, and I... I'm just not even sorry if Jesus' calling to a life of compassion makes you uncomfortable, because it should. We are called to be compassionate for God. Because thirdly, our hearts grow when we help someone out. Our hearts don't just grow when we talk about it. Our mind grows, we learn some facts. We can become aware of something we might not have been aware of before. But I've discovered that my heart is attached to my hands and my feet and my head. 
You know, and it's, it's his desire, it's God's desire, it's our desire in this church that every one of us would grow our hearts and that we would become passionate people by actually doing something, not just discussing or listening to a message. You know, when the church started and there was a few of us in the living room, we had that phone call. We had a phone call from a young lady who said, I'm in desperate need, and I've got a friend, and she told me that if there was a vineyard church in my town, I should ring them because they would help me. You know, and we had the choice in that moment to sow into our DNA the thing that God had called of us to be a church of compassion. You know, you are all Central Vineyard. And our DNA is compassion by the spiritual message and the material message. And we always knew that we couldn't tell the gospel to people who were cold if they were still left cold. And that has evolved over the years. We now have Restore Northampton, who Maria referred to. That came about as those very early seeds sown into us. And Restore is how we like to outwork lots of our compassion in Northampton. And they do many great things. But that doesn't let us all off the hook. We need to serve. We need to play our part. What would it look like for you to volunteer yourself to go and hold the hand of the broken people in this town? What would it look like for you to volunteer yourself to go and sit with someone and be made to feel really uncomfortable? There are so many people just longing to be received by God. They're broken and they need God's compassion. We are his hands and feet to draw those people to him. I don't even know why we, what we're waiting for sometimes. What more God, does God need to say to us that he hasn't already said? And I want to encourage you to have your heart grown, to be compassionate, to live that good life the good life, the big-hearted life. So why don't you, why don't we stand?